So this is the last message of our series, King David, uh, After God's Own Heart. And listen, the Bible is full of incredible heroes. But these biblical heroes don't wear colorful capes or costumes like the, the ones in the Marvel Universe. Instead, they instill with inside of us hope, optimism, and faith. These heroes of the Bible were men and women who overthrew kingdoms. They stood for justice. They protected God's messengers. They, they faced down ferocious lions. They uh, faced unquenchable fires and even belligerent giants. And of all these heroes, none was more heroic than King David. In the curtain call of God's mighty warriors, David actually takes center stage. See, David slayed giants and conquered kingdoms, and we know that the Son of God was actually called the Son of David. And, and like we said at the beginning of the series, the greatest psalms, many of which we still sing today, flowed from the pen of King David. And by now you know that we called him, that we call him king, and we call him warrior and minstrel and giant killer for a reason. We also said that the Bible dedicates more key references to King David's exploits than anyone else in the Bible other than Jesus Christ himself. But still, the most outstanding uh, 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 words ever spoken about David come from the lips of God. In our first series text, Acts 13, 22, God himself declares, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Who wouldn't like for God to say that about you? I mean, for the last few weeks, we've been examining the heart of King David in order to unpack for you what it really takes to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And, and when we last left David, he was on the run. He was hiding from uh, King Saul in the, in the caves of En Gedi. And yet when given the opportunity to take Saul by surprise, David refused to exact revenge and demonstrating in himself a God-focused heart, a faithful heart, and a forgiving heart. In time, we read, sadly, we read from the scriptures that King Saul tragically dies by his own hand. And so David, is a, he's officially crowned king, and actually he rises to new heights. In the first years of his reign, we know that King David distinguishes himself as a great warrior, a solid musician, an eloquent statesman, and a really, really good king. See, under King David's rule, Israel is now expanding. The country is now prospering again. His cabinet is strong and his boundaries stretch broadly for 60,000 square miles. Life is good for David. He experiences no defeats on the battlefield. And there are no blemishes in his administration. He is loved by the people. You can almost tell there's an election coming up, a primary, right? It kind of feels like that. He's loved by the people, served by soldiers, followed by the crowds. Now, after two decades on the throne, the wave of David's success peaks at the age of 50. And so King David, he... He stands on the highest point of, of his life. 
in the highest position of the kingdom, at the highest place in the city, literally on the palace balcony overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And yet it's from that very balcony that King David experiences his greatest fall. That story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You see, it's springtime in Israel. Go there, 2 Samuel 11. It's springtime in Israel. The nights are warm and the air is sweet. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 11:1 1, that in the springtime of the year, when kings normally, say normally, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the armies, the, the Ammonites rather. And so it was the king's duty to actually lead his army in the defense for his kingdom. David was the commander in chief and that was his duty. But this year, David didn't feel like fighting. He didn't feel like fighting. Instead, he sent his army to fight. And verse 1 goes on to say that David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, listen, I don't know why David stayed home. I've thought about that. I've kind of gone through in my mind all the different reasons. And perhaps he was weary of war. Or maybe he felt like he was, he'd gotten to a place where he was too important to be on the front lines. But all I know for certain is that David would have been much safer had he been where he belonged. With his troops. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this this morning. See, our greatest battles don't always come when we're working hard for the Lord. Yes, you have a target on your back and when you're working for the Lord, the battles will come. But I'm saying that the, the heaviest battles do not always come when we're working hard for the Lord. They sometimes come when we've got idle time on our hands. Like when we're bored. That's when we make sometimes some fateful and horrible choices and decisions that can come back to haunt us. And that is exactly what David did. And, and he was there in that point where with time on his hands, desires on his mind, and people at his disposal. See, he belonged in the battle. But instead, he was in the bedroom. And so he pushed the bedspread back. He stretched himself out and, and he yawned a couple of times. When I think of these scriptures, I think of him sleeping in like he never did. And, and so on that day when he slept in, on that day when he was at ease, on that day when he didn't feel like fighting, he decided to take a stroll on, a, on his rooftop patio overlooking all of Jerusalem again. He's in the highest place, in the highest of offices, and he enjoys the scenes and the sights. And after all, this was his city. He is the king, and life is good for David. But just then, in the distance, he hears some splashing and perhaps the humming on the lips of a very beautiful woman living beyond the palace and, and just within clear sight of his own backyard. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel eleven two that late one afternoon, as after his midday rest, as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Listen, I don't know 
If the woman, if she intended to get David's attention, but she certainly did. And see, King David, he looks at her and he likes what he sees. He's a man. And so in verse 3, he inquires about her. He summons a servant and asks, who is that? I need to know who she is. After returning, the servant replies, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I want you to notice something, that the servant laces his information with a warning, really. Not only does he give the woman's name, but he also gives her marital status, right? And he also lets him know that her, her, her husband's name as well. And so why tell David that she's married if not to caution him? Why include her husband's name, her husband's name, unless David was familiar with it? See, odds are David already knew Uriah, and the servant hopes to persuade the king from taking any more steps in that dangerous direction. But David misses the hints. And as the story continues, we have yet another glimpse of into the heart of a man after God's own heart, yet at first it may not look like what you would expect. See, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, and I know that some of you have been thinking of these verses as we've been doing this series, but Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says that the human heart is most deceitful of all things and desperately, what? Wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Verse 10, but I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. And so I know that I'm preaching this series on uh, after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, and people will immediately maybe think of these verses and thinking, man, what kind of a heart? Can we even depend on our heart? Can we even trust our own hearts? But there's obviously the motives and the intentions and that God sees as he, as he looks beyond the surface into your heart of hearts. You see, a, a human heart, it can either yield to God or it can yield to the flesh. And listen, it's a choice that David has had to make before. And so having a heart after God's own heart, it actually comes down to a willingness to surrender to God daily. And our choices actually reveal the core of our, of our heart. See, but God is the one who determines what our actions deserve. And if after making poor choices, follow me, and if after making poor choices, we're willing to repent and yield back, in order to please the Lord, and then God determines whether we truly have a heart after his own heart. Listen, last week, I believe we saw a glimpse of that choice, uh, uh, choice making when David had a chance. He had an actual chance to kill King Saul in the cave while he was re relieving himself, but, but only allowed himself to cut off a corner of the king's robe, right? He had a chance. Even his men, they saw, he, that, that, now's your chance, David. And so that, that while he, he chose to do that, he only chose to, to cut off the corner of the robe, he quickly expressed remorse after doing it. And in the process, he showed us what a heart after God's own heart really looks like. But this week, we're going to start 
by exploring how David's poor choices reveals, number one, a selfish heart. It reveals a selfish heart. Anybody any, know anyone that is selfish? And be careful not to point, not to do any glaring anything. You know, just kind of keep your eyes forward. David, he showed us what a selfish heart he had in this situation. And listen, despite his servant's warning, the Bible says in verse 4, go there, that David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. See, when David looked out uh, from his balcony that night, he didn't really see Bathsheba. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He saw her body. He saw her beauty. He saw Bathsheba, the conquest. Bathsheba, the object. But he failed to see Bathsheba, the human being, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Israel, and the child of God. No, David simply saw something he wanted. So what did he do? He took it. Listen, the, the story of David and Bathsheba is less a story of lust and more a story of selfishness. As the smoldering desire deep within him burst into flames, David thought of no one else but himself. And so he didn't think about Uriah and how his actions would cripple his marriage. And he didn't think about Bathsheba and how his advances would lead her into sin. He didn't think about his people and how his choices would actually impact a nation. He certainly didn't think about God and how his sin would shatter his relationship with the Lord that he loved so much. And so what did David do? He gratified his sexual lust, dishonoring himself, Bathsheba, her husband, and then simply sent her home as if nothing had happened. Listen, adultery is a sin all, all in its own. But it's also a, a common of a, a selfish heart and every single sexual sin, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, etc. is born out of a heart of selfishness. It happens when we put our own wants and desires ahead of God and ahead of anyone else's. And each one of us should, should search the soil of our own hearts for seeds of selfishness. I mean, do you sometimes look at human beings like objects? Do you sometimes feel in your heart of hearts a sense of entitlement? And do you ever take what you want regardless of, of who it might hurt? See, the Bible says in James 3.16, where jealousy and selfishness are, there will be confusion and every kind of evil. And be sure that, that selfishness will lead you to sin. And so, so that's where David was. See, decades of success transformed the humble-hearted shepherd boy into a prideful and arrogant king. And that arrogance led David to make a very selfish and stupid decision. This was not a heart after God's own heart. Not even close. And sadly, listen, David's sin, it doesn't stop there. See, we also see that David had a scheming heart. In verse 5, later in verse 5, Bathsheba, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but I'm almost certain that 
the blood, the color just drained from David's face at that news. His, his jaw probably dropped to the floor and panic from the result of the sin washed all over David. You see, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, has been fighting a war on his behalf with the Ammonites and so he couldn't possibly be the father. And David knows that if his night of passion goes public, he'll lose the respect, of the respect of the soldiers, the admiration of the people, the faith of his followers. He'd even bring disgrace on his dynasty. And so David devised a plan. In verses 6 and 7, he sends for Uriah. And when Uriah arrived at the palace, David requests a report from him. How was the war effort going? Or how are my troops holding up? And Uriah, he answers all of the king's questions. And then in verse 8, David told Uriah, go home and relax. And later the Bible says, David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. And some would venture that he probably sent him with some wine or something alcoholic. And so David would be easier to, 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 to be able to relax. And so David's scheme was simple. Give Uriah the weekend off. Send him home to his beautiful wife. Surely the two of them would sleep together. Then when the baby is born, Uriah would believe that he is the father. No one else would be the wiser. I mean, it was a clever and cunning plan, but there's a hitch. It says in verse 9 that Uriah didn't go home. Instead, he, he slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's guard. And now the next morning, David finds out what Uriah did. And he asks in verse 10, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you go home last night after being away from home for so long? In verse 11, Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open field. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. See, Uriah was a man of honor. He was a man of integrity. He refused to indulge himself or in his own desires while his fellow soldiers were still at war fighting for Israel and for David. And sadly, listen, David adds to his sin in verses 12 and 13. He actually gets Uriah drunk and hoping that that would cause him to sleep with his wife. And that even failed. And so David, in a greater sense of panic, he escalates his plot to the next level. In verse 15, David wrote a message to Uriah's commanding officer, issuing an order. Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back the army so that he will be killed. David then sealed the letter. Imagine this. He sealed the letter. He handed it to Uriah and he sent him back to the battlefront. And so all the way to the battle, Uriah literally carried his own death warrant from the king. This time, everything goes according to plan. 
In verse 17, we read about Uriah's death and battle. And so with Uriah now out of the way, David takes up with Bathsheba and he, he, he calls her his wife and, and moves on with life. And the cover-up appears to be complete and nobody knows. Well, somebody knew. See, the, to the casual observer, he, he or she detects no cause for concern. David has a new life and he has a happy wife and all seems to be well on the throne, but all is not well in David's heart. See, David is now living a lie. This passionate, handsome king, this outstanding leader now lives in the shadows of his own palace. He no longer goes out into battle. He shrivels up into something he was never designed to be. All because he, he deliberately, he compromised his convictions and then he cruelly covered it up and his scheming takes a, a toll on him mentally, physically, and spiritually. In Psalm 32, uh, verses 3 and 4, David later describes the season of secret sin in very graphic terms. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body washed away and I groaned all the day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Sleepless nights, haunting guilt. David was a walking wreck, living in a swirl of misery. That's what living in secret sin will do to you. Thankfully, David's story doesn't end there. See, a selfish and a, a scheming heart do not produce a heart after God's own heart. And so next we, we witness a welcome change in David's life, a change that leads him back to God. David, when David displays a sorrowful heart, a sorrowful heart. See, no matter how sneaky David tried to be, God knew everything. Say everything. One more time. Say everything. God knew everything he had done. And so God sends Nathan to David. Nathan, by the way, is a prophet, a preacher, a White House chaplain of sorts. The man deserves a medal for even going to the king with this. He knows exactly what happened to Uriah. David killed an innocent soldier. What will the king do with a meddling preacher? Still, Nathan goes... And we read about it in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Rather than declare the deed openly, Nathan relates this, uh, a story about a poor man with only one sheep. And David the shepherd instantly connects. And Nathan tells David how the poor shepherd loved his sheep and holding her in his lap and feeding her from his own plate. And she was like a member of his own family. Meanwhile, a rich neighbor entertains guests and prepares a banquet. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. As David listens, you got to understand there's a reaction 
uh, his, the hair rises up on the back of his neck and he slams his fist on, the, on his throne like a gavel and passes judgment. And in 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6, David says, As surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must uh, repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And if you know the story, you know what's next. And then with four little words, Nathan brings David's whole world crashing down around him. When the prophet Nathan says what? You are the man. Shock! David has nothing to say. God, however, is just getting started through his prophet. The Lord basically says, I made you king over Israel. I freed you from, for, uh, from the fist of Saul. I gave you your master's daughter and other wives to have and to hold. I gave you both Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I'd have gladly thrown in much more. And so why have you treated the word of God with brazen contempt, doing this great evil? You murdered Uriah the Hittite. Then you took his wife as your wife. Worse, you killed him with an Ammonite sword. David is broken. He makes no defense. He, he offers no excuses. Instead, he falls on his knees and he confesses in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Listen, if we were to question David's sincerity, we only need to read the psalm he wrote in the wake of Nathan's visit. See, for 19 verses in Psalm 51, David weeps over his sins and he pleads with God for forgiveness and grace. Create in me a clean heart, O God, David begs. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, he pleads. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And God did with David's sins what he does with yours and with mine. He forgave them. And again, Nathan delivers that message in verse 13. The Lord has forgiven you. Worship team, would you come? Listen, I, I want to make two observations about that confrontation because I don't know about you. Some of you do a great job with this, but I, I hate confrontation. I hate confrontation. It's unnerving. It, it makes me sick to my core. But there are times when confrontation is absolutely needed. And so two simple observations is, first of all, you and I, we all need a Nathan in our lives. If not for Nathan's willingness to confront David and call him out for his sin, David would have kept right on living in secret sin. And listen, let me insert this because there are some that enjoy this a little too much. It should be with brokenness and humility that you go to confront someone. And it should always be for restoration. I have seen too many times when we have likened ourselves to Nathan and, and man, we got a hold of somebody's secret sin and we can't wait to confront them. 
that shouldn't be your heart. That shouldn't be my heart. Nathan was broken. See, we, we don't, you and I, we don't need friends who will lie to us, telling us what we're, that we're making good choices as we actually wander away from God. You and I, we need friends who will tell us the truth and aren't afraid to point out our faults and our failures. So that's my first observation. We all need Nathans. Secondly, if God can forgive David, he can certainly forgive you. He can certainly forgive me. See, David's heart in that moment was selfish. It was scheming. It was, it was stained with the sin and the multiplication of the sin. But God lovingly washed away David's sin, restored the joy of his salvation, and renewed his spirit. Once again, David began, became a, a man after God's own heart. And you and I can too. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God's goodness. But it doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter how far, far you've fallen. God never gave up on David. And he hasn't given up on you. See, being a, a man, listen, I want to leave you with this. This is powerful. Being a man or a woman after God's own heart isn't a matter of perfection. It's a matter of direction. Being a man or a woman after God's own heart isn't a matter of perfection. It's a matter of direction. Being a man or a woman after God's heart simply comes down to having a heart in pursuit of God's heart. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to be obedient to the Lord this morning. For four weeks now, for four weeks now, we have been challenging you to, to have that desire to, to be like David, to pursue the things of God so that God would, would feel welcome saying to you, or about you, that, that, that John is a man after, after my own heart, that Karen is a woman after my own heart, that Ernie is a man after my own heart, that Cliff is a man after my own heart. That should be our desire. And again, it's not a matter of perfection, it's a, it's a matter of direction. And so I'm asking you this morning, what direction is your heart pointed in? What direction is your life headed in? I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about direction. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to obey the Lord with this this morning. I believe that for some of us, this morning is, is a, a, a time for a reflection of our own hearts and our own choices. And, and I believe that with all my heart that there are many of us here that, that we just want to please the Lord. And, and we would say, yes, Pastor Freddie, I, 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 I think I have a heart after God's own heart, but I want that more. I, I want to make sure that I'm chasing after it, that I'm in pursuit of God's heart and that I'm not failing it. And that I'm not lying to myself and, and that I'm not covering things up. And, and so, Pastor Freddie, this morning, I'm going to respond. Yes, Lord, give me your heart. Yes, Lord, help me to go in your direction. I haven't been perfect. I've failed. 
I've definitely done some things that I'm not proud of. But Lord, today I will say that I'm going to recommit my life, that I'm going to go in the direction that you go, that I live to please you, Lord. Hallelujah. If you want a heart after God's own heart, and listen, we're not obviously going to fit everyone up front, but if you want a heart after God's own heart, would some of you join us up here this morning? Just join us. Come right out of your seat. You want a heart after God's own heart. You're not ashamed this morning to get out and say, I want more of Jesus. I need God now more than ever before. Not that I'm confessing sin. Not that I'm saying there's something wrong with me. Only that I'm realizing that I need God more. Anybody need God more? Anybody want his heart more? Anybody want to please God with your heart this morning? And, and I'm going to wait a few moments. I, I want to I see a more of you respond to that call. I really believe that this morning for some of you is your morning. That listen, the devil has been beating you up with your past or, or even recent choices and decisions. And, and you are wondering how much further you can go. And, and you're feeling maybe even stuck. But this morning I challenge you in the name of Jesus to surrender your heart one more time to surrender it all to Him.